everybody, and thank you for tuning into the Federalist Files. We will be going over Federalist number 47 today. I greatly appreciate you all for tuning in. I apologize this weekend I was not able to put together the weekend special. I had a family event, and uh, it just ran a lot longer than I thought it would. Maybe this week, depending, I'm thinking about doing a Tuesday morning, a show that would be, I would produce it on Monday night, and it would come out on Tuesday morning. I'm thinking about doing that right now just because the amount of information that I have to report just to carry it into uh, on, a, on a Thursday morning, it would just be so much that it would be well over an hour show. I'm just thinking about doing that now, depending on how my time goes today. I'm pre-recording this. I'll put together that show and uh, put it out on Monday. I'm, th- I'm really thinking about it. I'm probably going to end up doing something something very similar to that, whether it's a, a long show or just maybe shorter than a normal size show. There's going to be something that I'm going to put together. So now that I got the housekeeping taken care of, thank you for tuning in. I got number 47 here. It is titled, The Particular Structure of the New Government and the Distribution of Power Among Its Different Parts, written by James Madison, January 30th, 1788. Topics include separation of powers and the structure of uh, government. And this one, 47 as well as 48, they're going to be generally about the same thing. What Madison does here is he connects how the three branches, how the power is to be distributed amongst them so that there is, there's going to unfortunately have to be an intermixture of powers and, and the structure of the federal government will have to have some sort of a, the, the point, the point behind having these three branches is to separate the powers and also make them independent independent of each other as as well as you can there is an understanding that you cannot reach a federal independence of every single branch of government it's just not possible um without giving one government one branch way more power than any other but the key is to have the branches of government set up so each individual branch has a defense against the other ones or a countermeasure So he explains this. I'll go on here. He begins the paper with the goal, and he he calls it, and I quote, to examine the particular structure of this government and the distribution of his mass of power among its constituent parts, end quote. So in this paper, he confronts the objection that the Constitution is distributed and blended in disproportionate fashion that puts liberty in jeopardy. Madison states... To this, and I quote: One of the particular, or one of the principal objections inculcated by the more respectable adversaries to the Constitution is its supposed violation of the political maxim that the legislative, executive, and judiciary departments ought to be separate and distinct. In the structure of the federal government, no regard, it is said, seems to have been paid to this essential precaution in favor of of liberty. The several departments of power are distributed and blended in such a manner as at once to destroy all symmetry and beauty of form and to expose some of the essential parts of the edifice to the danger of being crushed by the disproportionate weight of other parts. It's a little cryptic in his messaging here. But the most important part to take away from this is, in this republic, you want a system where each each branch, all three of them, are separate and distinct from the other ones, where there's not a heavy influence of one on the other, or else 
for example, let's say the executive branch, the president himself, appointed, nominated, and appointed all Supreme Court justices. The Supreme Court justices then would only just be an extension of the executive branch. But the system they have is they have the nomination goes to the president, and then the Senate is to approve it. So there's a there's a co-mixture of powers. So you don't have a judicial branch that's just made up of people that are straight derived from the executive branch. Thus meaning you would have an executive branch that would control, that would really not be only an executive branch, but they would also control the judicial branch as well. And he goes on to explain different state constitutions as examples of this. How some of them are much more distinct and separate and some are much more co-mixed to a detriment. So he goes on, he states, and I quote, The preservation of liberty requires that the three great departments of power should be separate and distinct. Accumulation of all powers, legislative, executive, and judiciary, in the same hands, whether of one, a few, or many, and whether hereditary, self-appointed, or elective, may justly be pronounced the very definition of tyranny. End quote. So he says, no matter what, the system, whether it's self-appointed, elected by the people, uh, hereditary, if you take all the power, these accumulation of powers, these three branches, and you throw it all in the hands of just one body, whether it's a body of people or whether it's one person, no matter what, when you throw all those powers itself into one group or one person, it is the very definition of tyranny because there's no balance of powers. There's no separation. So then he goes on. Were the federal constitution therefore really chargeable with the accumulation of power or with a mixture of powers having a dangerous tendency to such an accumulation, no further argu arguments would be necessary to inspire a universal reprobation of the system. I persuade myself, however, that it will be made apparent to everyone that the charge cannot be supported and that the maxim on which it relies has been totally misconceived and misapplied. End quote. So you have people that are his his adversaries his political adversaries are saying that there's too much of a mixture mixture and accumulation of powers in specific branches that's their their argument and he's saying there's nothing of the sort it's not true and he's going to he's going to show them that it's not true now in reference to the separation of these powers madison examines the british constitution under the view of montesquieu uh, when referencing the sole executive magistrate the king he states and I quote, on the slightest view of the British Constitution, we must perceive that the legislative, executive, and judiciary departments are by no means totally separate and distinct from each other. The executive magistrate forms an integral part of the legislative authority. He alone has the prerogative of making treaties with foreign sovereigns, which, when made, have under certain limitations the force of legislative acts. All the members of the judiciary departments are appointed by him can be removed by him on the address of the two houses of parliament and form when he pleases to consult them one of the constitutional con uh, councils end quote so he also kind of goes on he says our constitution is partially derived from the english system because to to them at this time it was the most robust the most profound it was the most innovative system there was in terms of governance uh but he goes on to say, you know, the executive branch, there, there. I guess it was a king, the king at that time, he played an integral part of the legislative authority in making law. 
which is usually and, and then him being able by himself to make treaties with foreign sovereigns is something that's not part of our system the legislative branch has to approve and then the president as well there, there's a much more of a co-mixture and a balance of powers in the united states comparatively to the british constitution the british constitution the executive held a lot more power so it goes on here, he states, and I quote, One branch of the legislative department forms also a great constitutional council to the executive chief, as on the other hand, on another hand, it is the sole depository of judicial power in cases of impeachment and is invested with the supreme appellate jurisdiction in all other cases. The judges, again, are so far connected with the legislative department as often to attend the and attend and participate in its deliberations though not admitted to a legislative vote end quote so i think he mentions all the members of the judiciary department are appointed by him so what he's saying is the judicial branch themselves are so far they're not connected to the legislative branch at all because the executive was the one that was appointing all of them all the members of the judiciary department are appointed by him as in the king and then he also additionally says that the power of impeachment was only in a sole depository of the, it is the sole depository of judicial power in cases of impeachment. So only, they had two different chambers. There was the, the two houses of parliament in, uh, and I think it's actually still this way. I think they do still have two, I don't remember exactly. I think it's like the house of lords and then the, and then the chamber of parliament or something like that. So you have kind of like our system, how we have the Senate and the house of representatives. They had two, but for their impeachments, they only had one legislative chamber that was in charge of, uh, that was vested with the power of impeachment. Whereas we have the House of Reps that puts up the articles of impeachment. They approve it through a majority vote. Then it goes to the Senate to convict. So we have a little bit of an intermixture even within the legislative branch where there's much more of a balance comparatively to them. So next he goes on to Montesquieu. He actually, he actually quotes him here. He states, there can be no liberty where the legislative and executive powers are united in the same person or body of magistrates. Or if the power of judging be not separated from the legislative and executive powers, he did not mean that these departments ought to have no partial agency in or no control over the acts of each other. And that's the very end there. But the last statement is from Madison. So that's him articulating what Montesquieu is saying. He's just saying there can be no liberty, there can be no freedom when you have the legislative and the executive powers united in the same person. So if you had if you had the king or you had our president, to put it in terms of the United States government, you had our president himself, if he was the one, and, and this kind of happens through executive fiat, through executive orders, if he was the one making law himself, then there is no freedom, that's a tyrannical system. And there's no separation of those powers. But he did not mean in saying that there's no separation of those powers that there's not a partial agency from one branch to the other. For example, when it comes to making federal law or, or codifying federal law, you have the legislative branch puts it through. The House of Reps pretty much writes the law up. Then it goes to the Senate for the confirmation. Once it's confirmed by the Senate, then it goes to the president's desk. So the president partially has an agency in making law. The president can approve it or he can veto it. So next he goes on in, in other words to try to put this in better terms. He states, where the whole power of one department is exercised by the same hands which possess the whole power of another department, the fundamental principles of a free constitution are subverted, end quote. So you have the whole power of the executive branch. If, if that executive branch is also to possess the whole power 
of the legislative or the judicial branch, then a free country is subverted. It's not free. It's tyrannical. It's authoritarian in nature. It is autocratic by having that system set up. So if you had, once again, like I mentioned before, he goes on to you know state some constitutions, some state constitutions with a legislative body. So their version of, I guess, a Congress, but for the state, the state legislature, were the ones that were in charge of appointing governors, thus making the legislative branch the executive branch as well. It gives them way too much power on that note. And he, he goes on to explain this. So next he states, and I quote, This, however, is not among the vices of that constitution. The magistrate in whom the whole executive power resides cannot of himself make a law, though he can put on a, on a negative on every law nor administer justice in person, though he has the appointment of those who do administer it. The judges can exercise no executive prerogative, though they are shoots from the executive stock, nor any legislative function, though they may be advised with with by the legislative councils, end quote. So, it's not among the vices of that constitution. So he kind of goes on, it's very interesting what he says here. He's talking about their king in uh, Great Britain. He's saying the whole... The whole executive power resides of himself, make a law, though he can put a negative on every law. So he doesn't actually have the power to make every single law. Nor administer justice in person, though he has the appointment of those who do administer it. The judges can exercise no executive prerogative, though they are shoots from the executive stock. So he's just saying, in some forms, the executive is limited, but in, in the view of Madison, some of the founders and the framers, it's not limited enough in Great Britain. So the executive power actually had much more power than our system here. Because then he's also saying, well, okay, so he doesn't do the judicial system. He's not the judicial branch, but he appoints everybody in the judicial branch. So he's pretty much, uh, he has too much control over that branch of government. And that's the point in, in our system is almost every single branch of government is dependent on the other branches in their own, the way in which they do business themselves. Um, with maybe, so the judicial branch, for example, the executive has to nominate, so the president has to nominate, and then the Senate has to confirm, so you have the two other branches of government that are, that play a role in the judicial, so it's not completely of one of them, it's not completely derived from an executive or legislative, and then the legislature, that actually is the only one out of all of them that really isn't derived, that isn't dependent but, but in their role, they're dependent in some ways when it comes to making law. Then they're held to a standard by the judicial branch because they have to read the law and interpret it to say, okay, well, this is legal, and they have to confirm it, as well as the president has to sign off. So they are also, there's checks on their power as well, and that's really the point of this whole thing. The executive, the check on the executive branch's power is the power of impeachment from the legislative branch. And then the legislative branch isn't the only ones that are in charge. Because then you also have the judicial branch reading up on it and making sure that it is uh, constitutionally legal to go forward with this impeachment. And that's that's the point that he's trying to get across here. I'm just trying to do my best to uh, explain it and go as in-depth as I possibly can. So Montesquieu next, he states, and I quote, When the legislative and executive powers are united in the same person or body, there can be no liberty because apprehensions may arise lest the same monarch or senate should enact tyrannical laws to execute them in a tyrannical manner. Again, were the power of judging joined with the legislative, the life and liberty of the subject would be exposed to arbitrary control for the judge would then be the legislator. End quote. So this is the interesting part. 
even in the United States, if you put it in our terms, or layman terms, when it comes to making law, let's say the legislative branch is controlled, completely controlled, two-thirds of it is all Democrat, across the board. And this is the way the system's supposed to work. It doesn't really work this way in nature because our judicial branch has been has been politicized, and, and apparently there's some rumblings about them also being threatened by BLM and Antifa, and this is the reason why they don't really go through with anything and they have no balls, for lack of a better uh, word, if you will. You have the legislative branch. They go and they make tyrannical policy. They make, they make tyrannical laws. You have the executive goes, well, I'm going to veto that because I think it's tyrannical. Legislative branch, two-thirds of us, we're going to override your veto which they actually did to Trump in his spending for or milit the military. And the reason that Trump vetoed it to begin with is because they made it more difficult for him to pull troops out of Afghanistan. And now you've, you're seeing now they're bombing in Syria, which I don't, I'm going to cover that in the current events. So we have legislative branch overrides the president's veto. Now, if the legislative branch was in charge of appointing by themselves, and, and they had the full power of the judiciary of the Supreme Court, then they wouldn't even have to worry if it was a tyrannical policy or a tyrannical law, if it was a gun grab coming through as a law in the legislative branch. If they were appointing the judicial branch in the Supreme Court, they would easily be able to get any tyrannical law pushed through, and that's what Montesquieu's talking about. So that's the point of having these separation of powers. Uh, Madison, he did, and, and that would that would end up in you know tyrannical nature, tyrannical manner. So Madison differentiates, stating that other branches may have partial agency over powers of other departments, but not the whole power. Madison details that the king has the arbitrary legislative power to make treaties, appoint all judicial members, and he heads the depositary of judicial power in the cases of impeachment, which is all that I mentioned before. Now, he goes into the examination, Madison, of the state constitution of New Hampshire, he states the provision declaring, and I quote, that the legislative, executive, and judiciary powers ought to be kept as separate from and independent of each other, as the nature of a free government will admit, or as is consistent with that chain of connection that binds the whole fabric of the Constitution in one indissoluble bond of unity and amity. End quote. So he's going to go on to explain the Constitution as uh, in New Hampshire. And then I think he mentioned some other constitutions I have. I have, I have the New Jersey Constitution, but I'm not going to go through each and every single one of them because they're, they're all different in very small measures. So he states, and I quote, talking about the New Hampshire Constitution, Her Constitution accordingly mixes these departments in several respects. The Senate, which is a branch of the legislative department, is also a judicial tribunal for the trial of impeachments. The president, who is the head of the executive department, is the presiding member also of the Senate, and besides an equal vote in all cases, has a casting vote in case of a tie. The executive head is himself eventually elective every year by the legislative department, and his council is every year chosen by and from the members of the same department. Several of the officers of state are also appointed by the legislature and the members of the judiciary department are appointed by the executive department end quote so there's a huge problem here there's a bunch of red flags in this system this system the executive branch is pretty much elected by the legislative branch legislative branch elects the leg the executive branch and then that executive branch elects the judiciary so 
everything is directly derived from the legislative. The legislative branch holds full power over the other branches in New Hampshire, and that's the problem with this system. He points it out. What's very interesting, though, one similarity that he has here is the Senate. The presiding member of the Senate is in the federal constitution currently. It's the vice president, and they're the tying vote. And that's something that we actually kind of adopted from that constitution, but we didn't take all this other stuff because this other stuff would become tyrannical when you have a legislative branch that is in charge of the entire government. So Madison, he continues by analyzing the language of the constitutions of the states and the Confederacy, some holding provisions quite similar, while others have a lot of mixture of these powers. So just to go over the Constitution of New Jersey, it's, uh, he states, uh, the Constitution of New Jersey has blended the different powers of government more than any of the preceding. The governor, who is the executive magistrate, is appointed by the legislature is chancellor and ordinary or surrogate of the state, is a member of the Supreme Court of Appeals and president with a casting vote of one of the legislative branches. The same legislative branch acts again as executive counsel of the governor and with him cons constitutes the Court of Appeals. The members of the Judiciary Department are appointed by the legislative department and removable by one branch of it on the impeachment of the other. And quote. So that one's interesting. So that one pretty much... You have the legislative branch running, man, they're, they're really running everything across the board. And then when they have the executive that they appoint themselves, the, the governor, that governor also runs the judiciary department. So it was totally, New Jersey was totally whacked out from the very beginning. Like it is now currently, it's pretty whacked out. So in doing so, uh, he concludes here after talking about all those other ones, because he talks about, I think he goes into Pennsylvania, he goes into all different states. So he concludes, and, he, and I quote, Inciting these cases in which the legislative, executive, and judiciary departments have not been kept totally separate and distinct, I wish not to be regarded as a advocate for the particular organizations of the several state governments. I am fully aware that among the mo many excellent principles which they exemplify, they carry strong marks of the haste and still stronger of the inexperience under which they were framed, end quote. So he recognizes that they were framed off of an experience, haste, he says, because it had to be quickly done in a, in a timely manner. So they didn't have a lot of time to write up the law, write up the organization of the government. Uh, from what I read, and I've, I've mentioned this before, our, our federal constitution is mostly taken from the Massachusetts government. And I don't remember or the, the Massachusetts constitution, and I don't think he goes into the Massachusetts Constitution and how they handled this, from what I remember reading. He, he read about Pennsylvania, Connecticut, Rhode Island. Let's see. Uh, I know he went into Georgia a little bit in this. Maryland, if I mention them. South Carolina. But he did not, interestingly enough, he did not, Virginia is another one, he did not go into Massachusetts, which I think is very interesting. And you would have thought, considering that's how our system, our system was mostly derived from that constitution, that he would have went a little deeper into them. I guess he wasn't, to make the point, he also mentions Delaware, to make the point, I guess it was better for him not to go into Massachusetts if, if they thought that was a fair system. But that's very interesting. That's something that you would just want to, you know, I guess, note for that. But, uh, yeah, so next what he says, and this is to end. 
He states, and I quote, It is but too obvious that in some instances the fundamental principle under consideration has been violated by too far, too great a mixture, and even an actual consolidation of the different powers, and that in no instance has a competent provision been made for maintaining in practice the separation delineated on paper. What I have wished to evince is that the charge brought against the proposed constitution of violating the sacred maxim of free government is warranted ne neither by the real meaning annexed to that maxim by its author, nor by the sense in which it has hitherto been understood in America. End quote. So in summation, uh, Madison, he asserts that the charge to the proposed constitution as being uh, devoid of the principle of separation of powers is completely baseless, especially considering how the state constitutions themselves, as he examined in this paper, signify a lack of that principle. And he says at the very end, he says that, you know, the next paper will further uh, examine this, this problem just to wrap everything up. So and the next paper talks about this a little bit. It's important to have the co-equal idea of powers, the co-equal powers that also are check and they safeguard each other, where all of the power is not held in one branch. If I had to tell you which branch holds the most power in our federal constitution, technically, it's the legislative branch, but the legislative branch can never actually consolidate or not consolidate, but they can never rally together to figure anything out because they're always fighting each other, which was actually the reason of the constitution because the, the founders and the framers didn't want to find... They wanted there to be a consensus agreement if they were to codify law or make a amendment to the Constitution. They wanted it to be difficult to change the law because they thought, you know, less law is better than more law, which through laissez-faire economics, it has shown to be successful <laughs> that that less law is better than more law. The more and more law you get into, the harder it, it becomes for the, the lower class or the small business owner to run their business successfully and only makes it easier for the big businesses. And then as well, you get into murky waters where you start restricting freedoms the more laws you get into. For example, this Equality Act that passed through, what we're doing now is where you are prioritizing sexual preference or gender identity, quote-unquote, to we, we are prioritizing that over religion, uh, over women, over many things where you cannot practice. And it's going to get to this point soon, and this is why I always, I always mention uh, these stories from China where they are treating religious groups, whether it is the Muslim population there, or it is the Christian population there, even Confucianism, which is supposed to be a national religion over there. It is the reason that they are condemned and they are ostracized from society, treated very badly. Uh, the Muslims in particular, the Uyghur Muslims in particular, are treated like uh, Jews during the Holocaust. There's a genocide going on there that has been actually recognized by the current administration, and, and that's that's the reason that we want less and less laws, we want less oppression and uh, less government interference in private life. So that'll, that'll conclude this one. I greatly appreciate everyone for tuning in. Please like, share, subscribe, let your friends know about the podcast, drop the mic. Uh, so I should be coming out with something Tuesday morning, late Monday night, Tuesday morning, I'll be coming out with a... Uh, a current event to make up for the weekend special that was missed. And then I should be able to still be going through with the, uh, in the middle of the week podcast around probably Wednesday night, Thursday morning. So I greatly appreciate you all for tuning in. 
make sure you tune into this current event that's going to be coming out Tuesday morning. I'll have it up hopefully by that time. I greatly appreciate it and take care.